Hey Dickheads, Tweed here with a few quick notes. First, I want to thank our fans, and especially our patrons, without whom none of this is even possible. Second, I want to tell you about the Blade Runner anniversary event we'll be hosting on June 25th at Mysterious Galaxy Bookstore here in San Diego. The Dickheads podcast will be there to celebrate Philip K. Dick's most popular adaptation, and yes, there will be gifts and prizes. Now, please enjoy this wackadoodle tale of PKD in the early 70s. Thank you. The Dickheads are presented in color. And we're going to talk a lot about the time that inspired this book, more than we're going to talk about, like, the actual writing of it in this time. But um, let's... So what year? Let me first get... What year did he write it? Well, let's first get out of the way the absolute details of that. This was written after a suicide attempt... And uh, like a serious one, in a long mm. bout of not writing, he had written Flow, the first draft of Flow, but um, had not really gotten to it in a long time. But the last thing he worked on before this was collecting the Book of PKD collection. So he did an editing pass on that. And the next thing he wrote after this was the Ubix screenplay for the French production company. Mm. Uh, the planning and writing of this happened mostly February 20th to April 2nd of 1973. However, he outlined the book in 1971, but we'll get to that. Uh, he turned it in to, to Doubleday and Ballantyne. He had a paper book and hardcover deal for this book before it was finished. A Scanner Darkly? Yes. So he, he wrote uh, the outline in 71, that early. That's interesting. Yes, and the, he, I'm amazed it was outlined. Yeah, but, uh, I never thought he wrote that way. <laughs> well, he did, but he often didn't follow them. Um, yeah, he wrote right. lots, lots of outlines. Right. If you read that, I have the outline for uh, Death of the Anti Watcher, which became Ubik, and you can see like the first couple chapters, he's following the outline, and then he's like, "Fuck it," it's like, you know, nowhere near. Uh, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, and then um, <laughs> so he somehow got a deal with both the double day he was already working with them and done do android stream of electric sheep and done deus irie and all that so he had a deal and he, he sold based on the outline he sold to double day oh and they did flow too but what's really interesting is that he sold the paperback rights to del to valentine and judy del rey at the same time and actually judy del rey had more of a hand in the editing than double day did on this. So the first edition came out from Doubleday in January 77, and they followed it six weeks later with the Science Fiction Book Club edition. And uh, and then the Valentine paperback came out in December, so all in one year. And then the first UK edition came out that November, so he had a deal to print it in the UK and in Europe uh, in the same year. So he had some pretty good deals going with Scanner Darkly, and I think most of the editors, publishers, like knew they had something really good going on. Now, we got to consult Divorcepedia. This all the period that inspired this is right after Nancy left Phil and took Issa with her. Now, when Anne 
and Phil got a divorce, she kicked him out, okay? And he ended up living with Armin uh, Davidson, the science fiction writer, in Oakland. And I saw that house when I was on my trip. And that's where he did the final edits for um, Three Stigmata. He wrote Ganymede Takeover during that period when he was living at the house with Armin Davidson. And that's, they would, those, those writers would all hang out at that house and kind of do what he called rap sessions. And that's how Ganymede Takeover happened. And then one of Marion Zimmer Bradley's books, I don't remember which one, but she credited Phil as coming up with the plot for it at that house in Oakland. And it's funny because Phil refers to that house as the slums of Oakland, but it's not that bad of a neighborhood now. <laughs> I don't know. But, um, but it's a very different situation and very key to what happened is that when Nancy divorced Phil or left him, she just moved out and left him with this big house in San Rafael, which they referred to as the Hermit House. That was their nickname for the house. And when she left, Phil was distraught. He was very close to his daughter. Um, he really loved Issa and doted on her. And Nancy's brother was also getting a divorce. Her, his wife's brother was getting a divorce at the same time. So weirdly, her brother moved in with Phil in that house. And then they had a third roommate, Tom Schmidt. Okay, so a lot of these details come from two things. Tom Schmidt talked to Lawrence Sutton before he died um, and gave a lot of these details to Phil's biographer. And then, um, weirdly enough, Phil, Phil K. Dick's stepfather, his mother, Dorothy's husband, was keeping a diary at that time. It was the last year of his life. He died that year in 1971. And he kept a really intense diary of things that were going on in their life. And so all, all these like weird things that was going on with Phil was in his diary. Mm. Okay. Including the fact that, and we know that Phil was using uh, Dexedrine, Benzedrine, and some street stuff. But we have no idea like what level of stuff he was using. What year was that? 1971. Okay. And, uh, or... 1970, excuse me, 70, going into 71 is when this period we're talking about. And 1970. And he kept protein milkshakes and $100 bars, $100 jars of white crosses, which were his jars of pills in the fridge. And the idea was is that he drank the protein shakes so he wasn't on an empty stomach when he was going through these pills. And he was spending close to $300 in 1970s money a week on Dexedrine, Benzedrine, wow. and whatever. And they were, he and his roommates were spending three days up and then 48 hours in bed, three days up, 48 hours in bed uh, from time to time. We do know that there is a letter that he wrote to a friend where he, is quoted as exactly saying the happiness pills are turning into nightmare pills. <laughs> That's the uh, familiar pattern with uh, hard drugs. Yes. Now, one of the lowest moments in this year is that Anne, his ex-wife, uh, if you recall, Phil had a really close relationship with Anne's um, 
daughters from a previous marriage. And he got along really well with his stepdaughters. And there was an incident where one of Anne's daughters was actually at high school and told, hey, I know where you can score good drugs from. There's this science fiction writer <laughs> who lives in San Rafael named, named Philip K. Dick. And she was horrified, but she actually told Phil, like, hey, like, this is happening. Of course, he knew that there was a bunch of teenagers, different people that were hanging out. I had a I had a similar situation. My uh, my best friend's mom's boyfriend that she was living with turned out to be the dealer for a bunch of people in my high school. Oh my god! <laughs> well, There's a story there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, uh, yeah. So Dick was a, a a sometimes a drug dealer. I don't know that. He well, at sold. least people were dealing out of his house. Yeah, That's people the, were dealing out of his house, and he, I don't think he was selling so much as like. Well, he might have been. I mean, he might have been. Now and then, um, yeah, I think I think that you know there was just a lot of this kind of underground commerce going back and forth without people even thinking about it. Yeah, that's exactly. my memory of what things are like too. Yeah. Now during this period, one of the things that the stepfather said was that his mother Dorothy wouldn't even go in the house when she would come to visit. That she would drive up and she would stay on the porch. And in February of 71, <clears throat> the house was going to be foreclosed on, and Dorothy had to pay his mortgage. And then he ended up like also borrowing money um, one other time from some friends of his. Uh, I don't remember exactly who it was, but twice had to borrow money to pay for the house that Nancy left him with. And then um, in April, so February, we have Bob coming up, doesn't want to come in. April, he announces that he has this new girlfriend and that he's going to sell the house and move to Mexico with the girlfriend, right? And her name was Jennifer, and she lived in Palo Alto, but was coming up and, like, getting high with him. And then he apparently, on May 3rd, contacted his mother and said, um, Jennifer's crazy. I'm stuck in Palo Alto. I have no way to get home. Can you come pick me up? Um, <laughs> and his parents suggested that he check himself into a psych ward, which he did. And he spent three days there. Okay. Um, but he checked himself out and then he got back to his house and uh, things did not change. The girlfriend had moved on. There was no more talk of selling the house and moving to Mexico. <laughs> okay um, and then um, well these sound like drug decisions yes yeah right <laughs> so Paul all Paul the Frank, plans you have <laughs> Frank Zappa has a song called cocaine decisions and right. you know it's in that same theme so around this time Paul Williams comes to visit who eventually became his literary executor after his death and wrote the book only apparently real and um, did the piece in Rolling Stone that made Philip K. Dick famous. And Paul Williams, his exact quote about being there at that time was, um, quote, Phil was playing a kind of guru role. It was a weird scene. Hmm. <laughs> uh, and at that we, point... But we do see that with a lot of writers. I mean, uh, Ginsburg did the same thing. A bunch of... You know, they're, they're, there's a ton of writers that take on that role of... Uh, of sort of the uh, the the prophet that people come to and gather around. 
Right. It makes sense. It makes sense that Dick would be one of those one of those types. But it was bad enough that Tom Schmidt moved out first, and then uh, Nancy's brother moved out, and he had two new roommates, which, according... Now, it's funny because I'm pretty sure Phil named them in the afterword, but Sutton, in the biography, gives them the names uh, Rick and Daniel. However, these are clearly the influences... Uh, Rick and Daniel are clearly Burris and Jerry Fabian from the novel. Okay? Ah, okay. And they move into the house around June. Okay, so around that time, and they're both dead by the time Scanner Darkly is even being written. Okay, and Rick <clears throat> Burris' character was definitely keeping weapons there, and um, he like a lot of those scenes where he's talking about the guns and all that stuff is is you know, real stuff. Daniel was the guy who had the bug fear. And it's, um, it's a true story that uh, Phil would tell him that he had a shoebox that he kept the aphids in. And he would tell him that, like, oh, yeah, we put all the aphids in the shoebox and we're going to put it outside. And, of course, they thought it was hilarious at the time. Of course, by the time, like, Phil got clean and he was like, well, this is really horrifying when he really thought about it. But at the time, they thought it was really funny. Um, he was making the teenagers hide like we talked about uh, but there were sci-fi friends had started to visit and that's when um, the Tim Powers came up uh, and stayed for a little while Ar- Armin Davidson came by and they were all kind of like communicating with each other like hey something is going on with Phil and like a lot of them were trying to offer help and uh, but <clears throat> around that time he met um, Donna the woman who inspired the character Donna. <laughs> well, a- that was subtle of him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, the whole um, he specifically talks in some of the interviews that Donna like was a real person that she was a seventeen-year-old who was hanging out the house. And when he talks about her, it's very strange because when he talks about the real-life woman, he's like, "Oh, I have a lot of respect for her." <clears throat> But she turned as an informant because she was getting in trouble and she didn't want her parents to find out. And he talked about her like he really respected the fact that she was, like, trying to get her life together by informing on him and all of his friends, right? (laughs) Uh, Which was interesting. And the whole you're a great man thing is a direct quote from the the last conversation he had with the real-life Donna. And Phil was like kind of like saying oh I'm a horrible person I'm all these things and one of the last things she said to him was you're a great man and basically telling him like you can get out of this you can move on from this and so Donna plays an important role in Phil like that her saying that you're a great man was one of the things that he kind of carried into like getting out of this and we'll talk about it. it was February when he really like broke free from all this stuff and um so then, November 17th of 1971, the big thing happens. I mean, we have almost an entire book in, in Paul Williams, uh, only apparently real, devoted to what happened November 17th, and that is the break-in, right? And, Larry, you have my copy of that book right now. Um, yeah. And uh, November 17th is the break-in, where Phil, his file box got blown up, and he... 
claimed to be worried enough that he was going to do damage to his own stuff that he had given the manuscript for Flow My Tears, the first draft, to his lawyer. His lawyer had the manuscript, not even him. And um, so, okay, so now there's all kinds of theories on this November 17th break-in. Um, was it the FBI? Was it Thieves? Um, was it all this? No. <laughs> uh, yeah. Earth Liberation Front. Who was it? Um, uh, basically, most of his close friends at the time believe Phil did it himself. And that's very important to the story of what inspired Scanner Darkly is because coincidentally, when the IRS was sending Phil letters that he owed all this money, the main thing that disappeared in the break-in was his checks and his financial records. Oh. All disappeared. Well, that was that was not unintelligent of him, I guess. I uh, get rid of the evidence uh, and have a and have a police record of it, of right. it having disappeared. Now he claims that he has no memory of doing this, and but most of his friends, if you talk to the people that were hanging around the house at the time, they all were like, "I'm pretty sure Phil did that himself," and um, he supposedly told Tessa once in their marriage that, that he thinks he might have done it himself. But that whole thing of maybe I did it, maybe I didn't, because it's I was very so... very Bob Archer. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think this is fundamental to what inspired Scanner Darkly was not just the fact that he may have blown this up and may not have remembered, but the fact that all of his friends were having theories about whether Phil did it or not adds so much to... It makes so much sense where this story comes from. Okay, so that was November. So um, what's kind of funny in, in the context is that in, in February is um, the Worldcon of science fiction is going to be held in Vancouver. Okay, that February. So November, he's blowing up his own shit probably and it is at this low point. And Ursula Le Guin writes a letter to the people they had asked they had invited Ursula Le Guin to be the guest of honor, and she couldn't go, and she suggested that they make Phil the guest of honor, which is really funny if you know what's going on in Phil's life, right? <laughs> to think, like, you know. However, we may not have gotten Phil ever to come out of this without that invitation. So that invitation, that urging by Ursula Le Guin, and the invitation to go to Vancouver is fundamental and Phil getting out of this period of depression and drug use and inspired some of the back half of Skinner Darkly. And right. he, there was a woman who was hanging around the house, one of the like the teenage drug addict kids that was hanging out was this woman Sheila. And Sheila was the one who like one of the quotes about like I'm pretty sure he blew it up himself was from Sheila. And Sheila was supposed to travel with Phil to Vancouver to be, and in fact, his speech, which is a famous speech, The Android and the Human, which is published in the selected writings of Philip K. Dick. It's funny because if you, it, the, the text of the speech has a dedication to Sheila at the end that he was going to point her out in the crowd and thank her, but she <laughs> sold her ticket. <laughs> uh, probably for drugs. Probably for drugs. Yeah. yeah, sold her ticket and did not go. And so Phil had to go on his own. And if anybody knows how agoraphobic he was and how he didn't, you know, like to be around people in the public, he's just been going through this horrible year. 
the idea of him showing up to Vancouver was was interesting. Now he got an act there. of courage. Yeah, it took courage, I'm sure. Yeah, and he got on the plane, got to Vancouver, and suddenly he was a rock star there. Um, everyone was excited to see him. Nobody knew he was all fucked up on drugs. They were talking to him like he was brilliant, and the Donna telling him he's a great man kind of figures into this. And while he's in, and then he just decides, I can't go back. I cannot go back. If I go back to the bay, I'm going to die. I'm going to kill myself. Um, and so he decides he's going to stay in Canada. So he announces to everyone in Canada, like, hey, I'm staying. <laughs> <laughs> That's another drug decision event. Yeah. Right. And so everyone's kind of like, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there's a married couple that he's living with. And, he, you know, he decides he's going to stay there. And at first he, um, you know, he, you know, then figures out that he needs help. And he ends up checking into a rehab in Vancouver. Okay. And this rehab is the inspiration for New Path, right? Right. And it is in Vancouver that he starts writing the outline for Scanner Darkly. And uh, so it would be, so it wouldn't have been 71 that he started the outline. It would have been uh, February to March of 72. So I had the, those dates wrong. So he, he started the outline in Canada. So he was in Canada for February and March. And then it becomes clear to him that he's not as welcome in Canada as he thought he was. <laughs> to begin with. And that's when Orange County happens because... One of the people he's in, con well, obviously he was good friends with Tim Powers, K.W. Jetter, um, and that whole crew, and specifically Marcus McNeely, I believe is the name of the professor who taught science fiction at Fullerton. Okay. Um, he can, told Phil, like, hey, if you move down to Orange County, I'll make you a regular at my class. And that's how we ended up with the papers at Fullerton. Hmm. Um, I can't help but wonder if his uh, thought about trying to stay in Canada was a way of outwitting the IRS. Well, I'm sure there was a scheme in there somewhere, right? <laughs> right. He also met Claudia, the, the dark-haired the dark -haired woman who he wrote about off and on for years. And by the way, i got to give a shout-out to Zach Wood, uh, who does PhilDickian.com and the book purveyor, because he gave me this letter that Phil wrote... In 1970, March 4th, 1975, to Claudia, who he met in Vancouver. And you can see here, it's, uh, so I now have a signed Phil letter to the woman he was stalking for wow. for three years, apparently. Um, and and I, I don't, I got to look at it a little bit, but um, David Gill has, she collected all the letters that Phil wrote her over that period and was trying to sell it as a book. And it never, she was never able to sell it as a book, but Gil has the manuscript. And when I was at Gil's house in, in Oakland, I got to see, got to flip through all the letters. They're, they're, they're pretty wacky. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He did eventually emerge from this kind of um, state of mind and, and from his, you know, drug paranoia and his obsessive uh, fixations and so on. Yeah, yeah but that, wasn't, that wasn't until a couple months later when, he started dating Tessa. She's the one that really brought him back to reality. Yeah. And now, if you ask Kyle Arnold, who wrote The Divine Madness of uh, Philip K. Dick, he thinks that the 
the effect, the paranoia of caused by the years of amphetamine abuse, like, is he doesn't. A lot of people think Phil was crazy, and that the Vallis oh. incident was was some kind of schizophrenia. It's not. It's more inspired by like the damage he did to his brain with the, you know. Yeah. No, that's that's not how drugs work nowadays. Uh, we're we're learning I'm just more telling and more you that, he... that, that that drugs cause these uh. Uh, deeper psychological problems to present themselves. That's yeah, but you know, happening. Yes, his his uh, some people have pointed out that um, his uh, his his vision of a uh, piscith, you know, and yeah. uh, and the and the pink ray uh, and so on um, resemble um, a stroke. And people who have abused um, amphetamines are, are you prone know, to in danger of getting strokes. Yeah, and that is what eventually killed him. So yeah, that's true. And uh, but anyways, he started writing the outline, but he wrote the novel back in Orange County, and that's why he changed the setting to Orange County, um, and just to and you know to do that. It was easier to write. Yeah, he could see the places he was at at that time. Yeah. Okay. So now we're gonna get into the actual writing. I'm sorry, that's a lot of stuff, but I think that stuff's all very important. Sure. To 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 what Spinner Darkly <laughs> is. Yeah. No, I mean, really, it is. <laughs> it, it is. So, um, Anthony, the first PKD quote. 